Recep Tayyip Erdogan. He has been in power for more than 20 years now, and based on the consensus right now, he may continue to stay in power after next week's runoff. There was still widespread support for the Sultan, because remember, the Sultan wasn't just the leader of the Ottoman Empire; he was also a spiritual power. You know, yeah. the leader of the Ummah. Uh, he had temporal as well. Umrah being the Muslim society, right? Which is to say that Mustafa Kemal, from an early age, right, resented religion or Islam specifically. You know, he very much saw it as a sort of parochialism and anachronism, which needed to be sort of eliminated from the you know the daily lives of Turks. He was a through and through man who was raised on French Enlightenment literature. I mean, he despised Islam. Um, Mustafa Kemal's signature achievement or desire was to transform Turkish society into a secular Western one. And so Erdogan is basically this uh, firebrand of a politician who socialized in local politics around the political Islamist movement, which had a beef, a grievance narrative with Turkey's secular Western Kemalist Republic that we just discussed, spent decades sort of campaigning on a message of we will take Turkey back to the old golden days of the Ottoman Empire. And he's what I refer to as like the, the anti-status quo, right? He represents the opposite of what Mustafa Kemal basically tried to achieve in the early years of the Republic. He's an election machine. Did you know that in 2017, a constitutional referendum was held in Turkey that abolished the country's office of the prime minister and its parliamentary system? and replaced it with an executive presidency and a presidential system, with virtually no meaningful system of checks and balances, hence giving Mr. Ordwan the power to rule by decree, as if he was an Ottoman sultan. But here's the thing. That constitutional referendum, the one that gave Mr. Ordwan all this power, passed with a bare minimum majority. Only 51.4% of the nation's vote. 51.4%. Hardly a national mandate for such a colossal and historic revision of Turkey's constitution and political structure. Hey there, news peelers. Today's May 19, 2023. And this is Adele, your host at the History Behind News podcast. Aren't you tired of the repetitive news on TV and social media? They just go over the same dramatized developments all day long. Do you ever wonder what happened before our news? I mean, how do we get here? They say if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So while others cover the news, I uncover its history. I call this peeling the history behind news, which we accomplish in weekly conversations with distinguished scholars who delve deep into history to give us their fascinating perspectives from our past. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee, or your favorite drink, or both, and let's get into it. Turkey is set to hold a runoff election next week, May 28th, between President Erdogan and Mr. Kilicdaroğlu, and the consensus is that Erdogan is in the lead. This has come as a surprise and a disappointment to many, particularly since there is much discontent against Mr. Erdogan. 
there are claims of his government's mishandling of the recent earthquake that killed 48,000 Turkish citizens. And there's the Turkish economy, which Mr. Erdogan has handled, or you could say mishandled, in a highly unorthodox fashion. I'll give you one example that the Wall Street Journal has been reporting on for some time now. Despite Turkey's soaring inflation, its central bank, as pressured by Mr. Erdogan, has decreased interest rates, which in turn fuels more inflation. To put this in perspective, in our country, the Federal Reserve is doing the exact opposite. The Fed is increasing interest rates to lower inflation. According to my guest, Dr. Sinan Jiddi, the Washington Post has labeled this election as the most important election of 2023 in the whole wide world. That's a big statement for the Washington Post to make. But I think it's on the mark because Turkey straddles the divide between East and West, between Russia and NATO, between political Islam and secularism, between the path to stability in the Middle East and, well, the unfortunate alternative. So, if Mustafa Kemal Atatürk is the father of the Turks, a title that was bestowed upon him in 1934 by the Turkish parliament, then who is Erdogan? What does he stand for? And what is his vision for Turkey? For answers to these questions and more, in fact, much more, I spoke with Dr. Jiddi, an expert on Turkish domestic politics and foreign policy. He's an associate professor of national security studies at Command and Staff College in Marine Corps University. He's also an adjunct associate professor at the School of Foreign Service in Georgetown University. In addition, he's a non-resident senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Dr. Jiddi is the author of Kemalism in Turkish Politics, The Republican People's Party, Secularism and Nationalism, a book that we discuss in this episode. To learn more about Dr. Jiddi, you can visit his academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So, stay with me as Dr. Jiddi and I peel the history behind this news. Dr. Jiddi, it is a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Let's go back. Um, let's go back to the transition of Turkey from the Ottoman Empire to a republic. You've written a book titled Kemalism in Turkish Politics, the Republican People's Party, Secularism, and Nationalism. To start off with, by Kemalism, you're referring to Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, correct? Correct, yeah. And his sort of national liberation movement uh, that he initiated beginning in 1919. So who was Atatürk? You see his picture everywhere so, in Turkey and in background when politicians speak, right? Correct. I mean, so at its most at its most basic, uh, Mustafa Kemal, uh, which is his actual given name, and Atatürk is the the name the last name he adopted in 1934, which was uh, bestowed upon him by the Turkish Parliament, um, is basically referred to today as the father of of modern Turkey. Uh, he certainly is sort of the founder of the Republic of Turkey that was established in in 1923. Following the 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 conference uh, or the agreement that was reached at the at the um, at the Treaty of Lausanne in Switzerland, um, but but at his core, Mustafa Kemal was born um, uh, in, and and raised in modern day Thessaloniki, Greece, uh, and um, 
basically joined the Turkish Land Forces Academy, Harbiye, uh, from an early age, uh, based on his keen interest in basically uh, establishing himself as a, as a sort of military professional. And subsequent to his, uh, to, to, to his graduation from there, he led essentially a very active sort of military career that was in keeping with his generation, um, which is constant war. Uh, the Ottoman Empire in its final years of decline, um, you know, faced numerous sort of secessionist movements and and sort of dismemberment uh, from the Balkans all the way to the Middle East, but ultimately culminating in the end of World War One, which resulted in the final sort of dissolution of the empire, uh, which was enshrined in in the in the Treaty of Sèvres, which never sort of came into to, to um, into force. But Mustafa Kemal was basically a career soldier. And he made a, you know, a name for himself, uh, quite a, you know, um, he was brash, he was outspoken. Many of his contemporaries found him to be arrogant and, and a bore, to be honest with you. I don't think... Arrogant and a bore, people, okay. Absolutely. Uh, you know, if you look at closely at the sort of, um, I think one of the best biographies ever written about him was by Andrew Mango, one of my mentors at the School of Oriental and African Studies, who, you know, is clearly, you know, in, you know, wrote a, a favorable um, biography of Mustafa Kemal, but also the most well-documented one, uh, which basically does situate him um, as this very sort of brash, outspoken, and sort of the guy in the room that everybody gets to notice, but not everybody that wants that likes, right? Um, Interesting. He's, he's very, and so he established himself there. But on the other hand. It wasn't altogether without merit. I mean, he was a very successful career officer um, and made a tremendous name for himself in his in his campaigns uh, and his military career, foremost of which is, is the Gallipoli campaign of 1915, which essentially gave him his gravitas, his panache. His Isn't his, that when they beat back Australian and British troops? Is correct. I mean, it was... You know, Winston Churchill was involved. Right, it was Winston Churchill, who was the first uh, Lord of the Admiralty, or you know, in British parlance, you know, kind of close to to to, to Minister Minister of Defence, basically put together a military campaign to knock the Ottoman Empire out of World War One in one pincer movement, which is basically a naval task force was going to sort of penetrate the Dardanelles and Bosporus Straits and anchor off the coast of Istanbul, and also basically force the Ottoman government into into surrender. Uh, Mustafa Kemal took charge of that military campaign by force, as in removing the German commander who was essentially seen to be or appointed to be the commander over there um, oh. and said, you know, I have a better way of defeating this um, and, and being successful. And he was successful. Um, you know, a tremendous amount of lives were lost on both the the, the Ottoman as well as Allied sides. Uh, but nevertheless, Mustafa Kemal prevailed. Uh, amongst soldiers, but also amongst the, you know, the Ottoman population. His name became synonymous with sort of bravery across Ottoman households throughout Asia Minor or present-day Anatolia, um, which built him a his significant reputation. So when the Ottoman Empire was knocked out of the war and surrender terms were, was forced upon the Ottoman government or the Sultanate, Mustafa Kemal, when he, he basically said the Ottoman Sultanate should not honor honor this because it's the, the, the settlement terms were, were 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 unfair. Now, to be to be honest, you know, when you lose a war, you don't get to dictate the terms <laughs> of yeah. how you settle, right? 
So when Mustafa Kemal basically said, this is not surrender, this is capitulation, this is enslavement, uh, because the Sevra Treaty that was served upon and signed by the Ottoman Sultan basically ripped apart the last remnants of Ottoman territory. You know, a bunch of territory went to the French in the modern day Levant. The British got most of what's, you know, modern day Iraq. Uh, the Armenian uh, Armenian sort of uh, lands was extended far into, into Asia Minor today. Uh, uh, the Italians were basically given most of Southwest Turkey. The British basically got sort of, you know, influential positions, you know, as well as basic control of Constantinople or Istanbul today. And Mustafa Kemal said, no, absolutely not. We, we can get a better deal than this. So oh, the wow. only reason I think that people followed him and decided to sort of stick it out and say, well, sure, this is unfair and we're willing to fight for you for this is because of his reputation. Right. As, as a person who's measured and between 1919 uh, to 20, 1922, Mustafa Kemal served up essentially an alternative plan saying, look, we don't want to fight. We don't want a continuous war, but we would like equitable terms for the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire, which doesn't basically enslave the remnants of the Muslim population. Uh, and we would like a homeland for the for, for Turks. And so they drew, he drew up essentially a map which kind of resembles the modern map of Turkey today, saying this is the minimum that you know, we will settle for if you do not want us to fight. But if you push us, we will fight, um, which he did, uh, because the, the Ottoman Sultanate declared him to be a terrorist and issued a fatwa. A terrorist? Yes. Uh, he was declared a sort of terrorist and a death order was signed by the Sultan saying that um, he should be executed on site. Uh, because he was going against the wishes of, of, of the Sultanate. Mustafa Kemal played it kind of, you know, he was very coy and said, I understand, you know, this, the, the Sultan's perspective, given that he is acting under duress. He doesn't actually mean what he says. <laughs> How and clever. Work to liberate him. Yeah, I mean, he was very clever. And he basically, that's, he did that because he was interested in eliciting as much public support for his military campaign and he still sort of guessed at this point there was still widespread support for the Sultan. Because remember, the Sultan wasn't just the leader of the Ottoman Empire. He was also a spiritual power, you know, yeah. the leader of the Ummah. Uh, he had temporal as well. Ummah as being the Muslim culture. society, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that's why people got, you know, coalesced around him. And he fought a very successful military campaign in Asia Minor, Anatolia today, and saw the liberation of these lands from, from foreign sort of occupants. Um, and successfully defeated the invading armies in 1922, which then gave him a strong hand at the negotiating table in Lausanne, uh, whereby the Treaty of Sevra that dismembered the Ottoman Empire was put in the trash can, and he was able to successfully negotiate uh, the Treaty of Lausanne, which is, to, to this date, is the founding document of, of the Republic of Turkey. It recognizes it as an independent and sovereign hmm. state. And it's what I typically refer to as the title or the deed to to the modern republic that that you know that uh, that gives it international standing, and it's quite a remarkable achievement. So let's move forward from this quite remarkable achievement of Ataturk as a military uh, personality, and he's not called Ataturk yet at this time. So we move forward, and he flourishes from this military platform into a politician. So. What is his vision for Turkey? Well, I mean, he made no secret of this. You know, the 1920s and 1930s was the culmination of both a cultural 
as well as economic sort of uh, transformation of the Republic to resemble what he would like it to have been uh, somewhat close to a resemblance of modern day France, right? He really basically tried to model the Republic on a, you know, on, on a sort of proto-Western state. Uh, and France was, was one of the models he went after. So if you look at some of the early sort of administrative reforms that w- went into place, um, Turkey's entire sort of establishment and, and, and set up as, as a republic legally is based very closely on the French model, even to this day. So when French public administrators visit Turkey or vice versa, you know, from prefectures to districts to sub-districts, the Turkish model very much resembles the French model of state organization. Interesting. Uh, the Italian, yeah, I mean, the, the country's penal code was, uh, criminal code was based on the Italian uh, system at the time. Turkey took its civil code, where, which governs family life and like personal rights and freedoms from, from, from Switzerland. Um, and a modern sort of state-led capitalist economy was, was basically put in. But more so than that, um, Mustafa Kemal's sort of um, signature sort of achievement or desire was to transform Turkish society into a secular Western one, which clearly delineated um, state and religion sort of uh, entities. Were they successful in that? Not entirely. I think there were a lot of outliers. I think religious identity was was um, sort of railroaded over in the earlier years of the Republic, uh, which obviously sort of caused downstream a lot of revanchist movements in political Islam that we came to see later on in the country. Um, um, if I can, um, if I may interject here, please interrupt you. Can we go back to a um, couple of things that you mentioned, cultural uh, uh, cultural vision, uh, one one of which his signature achievement was secularization of Turkey. There are a couple of things that I know from history um, that I, I want you to illuminate on. One is he changed Turkey's alphabet, and you know he also, I guess, ordered for women to not wear the hijab, at least in certain institutions, for example, schools or government institutions. So. Let's let's first go back to the writing. He changed Turkey's alphabet from an Arabic-based alphabet to a Europeanized Latin alphabet. What was that for? So one of the ways that we should sort of bring this out, I think, that would be useful for people to sort of understand is we're all creatures of our upbringing. Mm-hmm. So, which is to say that Mustafa Kemal, from an early age, right, resented religion or Islam specifically. You know, he very much saw it as a sort of parochialism and anachronism which needed to be sort of eliminated from the, you know, the daily lives of Turks. He was a through and through man who was raised on French Enlightenment literature. I mean, he despised Islam to the to its very core. That's really um, strong. Despised and oh, resentment. It is. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay. There are vivid sort of memories that he has of his father who basically tried to encourage him to go to mosque. Huh. And he was not very happy about it at all. I mean, it really left a deep imprint, but more so his sort of socialization within the Ottoman state bureaucracy, where he saw sort of accolades and, and you know, um, praise heaped upon the Ottoman sultan, who whose sole source of legitimacy was that he was a god's shadow on earth was just a concept that he grew to resent. Um, he, so just from an upbringing perspective, he resented this. Um, so when he was in a position to make sort of changes and um, really model the Republic in the vision that he wanted to outline it in, 
that sort of deep resentment of Islam sort of filtered to the top. And he felt that if people needed to sort of maintain vestiges of religion and personal belief, that that could be basically, you know, a private issue, relative, you know, just relegated to the realm of the private. If you want to go and pray, if you want to be faithful, do that in your own time. But he didn't want religion to play any sort of uh, public role. So when it came to the role of the alphabet, the Ottoman script, the Ottoman was essentially written in Arabic script, as you correctly pointed out. Um, but Turkish, as we speak it and write it, uh, his sort of take on it was, look, um, the Turkish language is not very conducive right, to Arabic script. It has kept a wide swath of Ottoman citizens illiterate. Um, and we need to basically encourage literacy to the maximum amount, uh, amount possible, which means, from his perspective, uh, that the alphabet, you know, the language, you know, the script which is used to convey Turkish has to be changed from Ottoman or Arabic to 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 modern Latin alphabet. He wasn't wrong about that. Linguistically, Turkish is much more compatible with the Latin script, right? It is, it, yeah. it, it's much, it's a very linear language, and very few exceptions to rules. And it works much better. Um, uh, so the one sort of the overriding factor that he sought to achieve was increased literacy so that the citizenry was, you know, educated, you know, that would allow them to be upwardly socially mobile, economically more prosperous by being educated, et cetera, et cetera. And that was not, you know, that, there is no doubt that that was successful. Um, by the 1950s, Turkey's literacy rates shot up to, you know, almost 50, 60 percent. And in the modern era, Wow. He's very literate in a sense. Whereas the, on the ideological side, though, this was also has to be mentioned. The other side of the equation as to why the Latin script was it was was adopted uh, in 1927, yeah. right, was basically um, simply as a reflection, right, of wanting to cut ties with the Ottoman past. So the transition from Ottoman script to Latin alphabet took place within a series of months, not years, months. Oh, wow. That's almost cataclysmic for your average, right. everyday Joe, right. <laughs> like, you know. Yeah. So, for example, uh, my great-grandmother, uh, who was born before the Republic was established, or thereabouts, if I, if I remember this correctly, was one of the last few people who basically grew to sort of utilize the, the, uh, the, um, the Arabic script, the, right? So I sometimes saw her writing a shopping list, which would be um, both in Arabic script as well as modern Turkish. And I used to ask her, what are you <laughs> writing there? And she would typically say, that's old language, right? Um, but here's the thing. Since her generation passed, uh, you know, 95, 98 or, you know, or greater percentage of the Turkish public does not know Arabic script. Mustafa Kemal purposefully wanted to ensure that the public didn't sort of look to old script, old vestiges uh, to sort of see what the old Ottoman Empire was about. He wanted them to concentrate on what was ahead. And if you cut ties with the script, it's hard for people to just sort of romanticize the past uh, by sort of looking at old text. The only people in Turkey today who have competent use of Ottoman uh, or Arabic script are historians who are academically trained because they're required to learn it, to translate yeah, yeah. Uh, Ottoman documents yeah. and look at that. But the vast, overwhelming majority of our Turkish citizens do not um, do not have knowledge of Arabic. So, no, the Cultural Revolution was, you know, very westward looking. And it's sort of like, you know, between 1923 to the early 1930s, a lot of it was just sort of slapped down from the top. 
and um, no doubt it had benefit for really sort of economically mobilizing Turkey and educating the citizen body. Not much choice was given. It was just basically imposed simply because the positivist school of thought, basically, you know, led by Mustafa Kemal said, look, the world is modernizing. It is the age of the nation state. You know, peoples, as he called them, uh, you had two choices and it was a stark choice. You could either sort of jump on the bandwagon of success and modernization and survival as a modern state, or you could go into the dustbin heap of failed empires, which essentially were not going to be the, the heyday of, of, of civilization going forward. So he basically didn't give much choice to people. But, you know, one way of seeing this is kind of like benevolent authoritarianism. I know what's best for you. Or, or yeah. sometimes I call it the Tim Cook Apple approach. People don't know what they want until it's given to them. <laughs> the Torque and uh, Tim Cook Apple approach. We'll be back after a short break to talk about Rajib, Tayyib, or Dwan. We'll be right back. From secularism to Islamism, this seems to be a trend in the Middle East since Iran's 1979 revolution. In an earlier episode, Dr. Ramari Tabrizi of Princeton University spoke with me about Iran's dichotomy of an Islamic state pretending to be a republic. How would one even write an Islamic constitution for a republic? Here's a hint. Iran's ayatollahs had no clue. The link for my conversation with Dr. Kamari Tabrizi is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Jiddi. Dr. Jiddi, who is Ordwan? What's his background? So, Recep Tayyip Erdogan is a politician in Turkey who's the president of the republic, and he has been in power either as prime minister or the president since uh, 2003. That's um, that's 20 years. It's it's a long, long time, and <laughs> you know I, you know I'm I'm 45 years old now almost, and um, I remember the day he was elected or his party won. I was actually at the BBC's Turkish service headquarters in London as a young graduate student, you know, monitoring the elections of November 2002 when his party was elected, although he was banned from taking his position as an elected member of parliament because he had a political ban on him, which is in sort of indicative of what, what, what his sort of political background is. And he's what I refer to as like the, the anti-status quo, right? He represents the opposite of what when Mustafa Kemal basically tried to achieve in the early years of the Republic. Tayyip Erdogan was basically, okay. yeah, I mean, he was socialized in the country's political Islam movement, right? The What, what in Turkish is referred to as the Milli Gurush, the national view movement, right? That dates back to the late 1950s, early 1960s, when it was sort of formulated as a political movement uh, under the, the mentorship and leadership of, of Nejmettin Erbakan, who was Erdogan's political mentor, right? And so Erdogan is basically this uh, firebrand of a politician who socialized in local politics around the political Islamist movement, which had a beef, a grievance narrative with Turkey's secular Western Kemalist Republic that we just discussed, right? Um, Erdogan grew to essentially resent and loathe uh, Turkey's sort of Western sort of credentials and the Miligurish movement in which he was socialized under spent decades sort of campaigning on a message of 
we will take Turkey back to the old golden days of the Ottoman Empire. We will end its relationship with the European Union. We will get it to sort of leave NATO. We will make sure that, you know, segregation of the sexes will come back into society. Um, this and, is all opposite uh, Ataturk. Yes, it was. It, and it, yes. And, um, you know, throughout the 60s and 70s, uh, it was seen of this as a sort of marginal sort of um, weird sort of political movements, which found it difficult to get above the single digits in voter preferences. Right. It really mm -hmm. didn't reflect that greatly in Parliament. Uh, but over the decades, uh, by the late 1990s, this political movement grew into a major political force under the banner of the Welfare Party, where Erdogan became very, very influential and rose to the top, uh, galvanizing, you know, culminating in, I would say, when he became mayor of Istanbul in 1994, right? Um, Which is strange because Istanbul is essentially more or less a secular city full of tourists, economy, finance. Uh, he's not from like one of the interior smaller towns, provincial cities, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, he's from, um, you know, he's tip. You know, he's originally from the Black Sea region, uh, mm -hmm. uh, which is typically very sort of you know a, a mishmash between conservatism and sort of nationalism uh, as far as Turks go. But he actually, as a child, grew up in in, in a relatively poor district of Istanbul, uh, which is Kasım Pasha. Right. Because mm -hmm. is essentially his home turf. And that's how he sort of like sells himself to Istanbulites. Um, so he knows the city very well. But once he became mayor, right, he really set himself apart as a leader um, uh, quite quickly because he transformed the landscape and the government of Istanbul. Uh, the city was really badly managed uh, by the sort of centrist, secular, Western oriented parties, if you want to be slightly reductionist here, prior to his tenure as mayor. Right. And, you know, Turks experienced, you know, frequent power outages. You know, people found it difficult to get fresh, clean, you know, you know, reliable, clean water pumped up to the eighth floor of apartments. Wow. Right. The roads were bad. Public transportation was a mess. The air quality in the city was terrible. And if not, and one of the things that people remember at that time, like trash collection was terrible. Um, notorious fights between unions and trash collectors and, and the city. And, you know, when Erdogan came in and basically, you know, transformed this to the extent that by the early 2000s, Istanbul was unrecognizable in terms of how well it was managed, you know, um, prior to, you know, after, you know, after Erdogan got hold of, of, of power, much better public transportation, you know, to this day, you know, trash pickup in Istanbul is notoriously well handled, you know, you'll have two trash pickups probably throughout the day in most parts of the city. This uh, is a success story. It is a success story. I mean, that's what he built his name and brand upon, right? To the extent that, you know, when when Erdogan essentially, um, you know, when he won the mayor of Istanbul, uh, he managed to hold on to the city or his party managed to hold on to the city, whether it was the welfare party that he began with or now the present Justice and Development Party. They managed to hold on to it all the way up until uh, the 2019 local elections, right? When they first, and, and so that just shows you how convincing he was to voters in Istanbul, who typically may have voted for Erdogan or local politicians that succeeded him in Istanbul at the local level, because they just felt a better confidence in his sort of political movement's ability to govern big cities, right? Um, mm -hmm. Than they did for national office. Uh, but it, what we should emphasize here is it was his reputation as a local mayor or 
the mayor of Turkey's biggest city, yeah. Istanbul, right? That basically catapulted him up to the national leadership, right? Um, so I want to just ask uh, two quick questions here. One of them is sort of half cute, so but I just I just want to understand uh, Ordwan and uh, his practice of Islam. Is he truly? Let me ask it this way: Would Ordwan drink alcohol at home in 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 the sort of sanctum of his privacy, or is he really a practicing Muslim? Is this Islam for politics' sake? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, look, Mr. Erdogan has a lot of, he has a complicated relationship, I think, with being a devout Muslim. Outwardly, you know, he presents himself as a notoriously world-versed Hafiz, right? What's a Hafiz um, for our audience, please? A Hafiz is a person who's basically learned to recite the Quran, right? Um, Memorize Erdogan. It. Yeah. He's a graduate of an Imam Hatib high school, which basically means he was trained in jurisprudence instead of going to a conventional sort of high school. The, you, know, um, you know, Imam Hatib schools in Turkey are an alternative to regular high school where wow. there is a higher concentration of learning in, in Islam as well as, to a lesser extent, world religions, right? So outwardly, he professes that he is a very devout practicing Muslim. The problem, the reason why I say it's his, his current relationship with Islam is complicated is because, well, look, in the last 20 years, he's been, you know, prime minister or president, you know, he is tied, he's, his, his name is tied up with notorious levels of corruption, right? And misuse yeah. of government yeah. funds, uh, familial sort of appropriation of ill-begotten sort of uh, financial wealth. He is rumored to have essentially amassed over, you know, several hundred billion dollars worth of net, you know, Income. Wow. Uh, and I don't know how you may do that on a prime minister or president's salary. Um, he lives in a palace that has over a thousand rooms. I mean, uh, but that's not his, his palace. That belongs to the nation, right? It's like a presidential palace. That's, that's how we exactly. That's how we would peddle it. Um, you know, there is a widespread sort of belief in Turkey by at least half the population that you know he only sells God for political expediency, or as, or in other words, his, his essential relationship to Islam or his devoutness is a reflection of his pragmatic ability to mobilize that for electoral gain. Um, so, you know, depending on your take on this, on your perspective on this, depending, you know, you either believe that or you don't. Um, I, for one, basically think, you know, he's just like other politicians. Some people sell you, you know, left-wing politics. Someone says, you know, to get elected. Others sell you right-wing politics. Erdogan sells you Islam, right? And he's used that to get ahead as much as possible in in any electoral race, and it served him quite well. So his his bent toward Islam, political Islam, is 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 it is this a reflection of Turkey's bent towards Islam in the last 20, 30, 40 years? Or so is he a product of it or is he responsible for it? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think it's a little bit of both, right? So the, the, the political movement that we discussed that Erdogan belongs to, the, the National V movement, right, was instrumental in galvanizing and amassing a whole bunch of public sentiment under its wing and umbrella and channeling that towards political preferences in elections, right, stating that the secular Western Republic established by Mustafa Kemal 
only benefited a small number of people um, and not widespread masses. And uh, it belittled people's beliefs. It otherized them. It trivialized them. It sort of shoved them underneath and, you know, the, the, the covers and didn't allow them opportunities to sort of um, make a successful sort of life for themselves. What, what do you mean it belittled and, people's beliefs? What sort of beliefs? As in political beliefs or... Um, no, they're, they're sort of... The, the, the fact that they were devout, that they were otherized because they were, you know, chose to prioritize and, you know, make public their sort of... Um, uh, their beliefs. So it was it was very much represented and brought to the sort of... to the forefront by, for example, a symbol of Islam in Turkey, the headscarf movement. So... You know, under the secular republic, you know, women were, brand, were basically prevented from wearing their public from their headscarves in public, right? As in, you know, if you went to a government office or you, you know, you were not necessarily you were not allowed to wear that headscarf. You went to university as a woman and wanted to hair, hair, wear a headscarf that was not permitted. Um, I'm not was, advocating a hijab, but that doesn't sound like freedom, right? No, it wasn't. I mean, this is and this is this caused a huge amount of backlash. And basically, Erdogan sort of campaigned upon this notoriously and said, because of these sorts of bans, I had I was forced to educate my children abroad. So he sent his daughters and sons to universities in in the United States, um, basically saying that they were, you know, prevented from exclusively, you know, uh, living out their sort of their, their their way of life. And that, you know, that 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 proved instrumental and it struck it resonated a tone. Uh, resonated with a lot of voters in Turkey who felt that um, people's faith was belittled and otherwise by the secular Kemalist Republic and essentially uh, proved to be a sticking point which allowed Erdogan to, to, to sort of sell that to, 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 to dis disgruntled voters. Um, and throughout his tenure, uh, he's made sort of amendments to procedures that now allows where, women to wear whatever they want in public offices, right? especially universities um and and that is and he's sort of looked upon as somewhat the liberator of, of 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 faith in turkey by some um but on the other hand i think he's also favored uh, or he's looked upon by the secular sort of establishment in turkey saying well sure he's basically allowed um you know gone you know allowed religious and faithful people to to live their lives exclusively the way that they want to but it, that's come at a cost that now sort of trying to sort of suppress and supplant a secular way of life. So there's been, you know... Oh, the, um, so the pendulum has swung too far to the other side against secularization. Yeah. That's what they're claiming. That's what they're claiming, yeah. And Do you so agree with of, them? You know, I mean, to an, to an extent, yes. I mean, like, you know, the, the sales tax on alcohol has shot up. Um, people are more afraid of their way of life than they have before. We've seen the, an exodus of, you know, non-Muslim people out of Turkey, such as Turkey's Jewish minority in the last 10 years have really started to migrate out of Turkey for fears that Erdogan's Turkey does not protect their rights. Hmm. Um, there is an increased sort of, you know, fear going forward that Erdogan may even clamp down on this further because he feels that the nationalist sort of Islamist rhetoric and identity sort of narrative resonates with people increasingly. And then... And he might sort of move on this more. Who knows? Um, speaking of nationalist um, tone of Islam, um, I think in the last several years, um, uh, we've seen, and I'm using my words here, sort of a muscular nationalism presented by Erdogan or Turkey 
um, from you know my my uh, upkeeping with Turkish news. I know there's Tur- Turkish built warship, stealth fighter jet, electrical vehicles, this sort of technological advancements that uh, must be sources of pride for the people of Turkey. Why wouldn't they? That's natural. But does this national pride play out in Turkish sort of politics and Erdogan's appeal as well? Uh, short answer, I think it does. Um, the defense industry platform in Turkey has served as a sort of beacon to really mobilize, you know, Erdogan's voter base, particularly in these elections, but also some previous ones too, whereby, you know, Turkey has developed quite a robust and sizable defense industry, right, which um, has made it much more independent of Western suppliers than it ever has been in its history, right? Which is weird because it's a member of NATO, right? Right, but you see, since the 1970s, uh, Turkey has faced sort of a variety of like, you know, um, uh, sanctions from not least of all the United States uh, for a variety of reasons. So back in those days, it was Turkey's invasion of, of Cyprus in 1974. Yeah. Yeah. It in a basic sort of military embargo on Turkey by the United States, which crippled uh, Turkey's tank and air force simply because the, Turkey couldn't acquire spare parts which gave this sort of kickstart to the beginnings of a domestic defense industrial base. In the early 2000s, following the beginning of the sort of the Iraqi invasion by the United States, Turkey demanded drones from the Bush administration shortly after Erdogan came to power and the Bush administration denied them that supply, at which point the Turks basically- I'm sorry, he demanded what from the Bush administration? Uh, Drones. Drones, okay. Okay. Drones, yeah. yeah. Uh, Specifically Reaper drones, if if, if I remember correctly. Um, the Bush administration denied that request, which basically took, you know, made Erdogan say to his defense industrial base, well, go make your own. Let's let's go. And what that has culminated is in Turkey's sort of defense industries, for example, in the realm of drones, is pretty robust. I mean, Turkey now supplies the Ukrainian military, uh, these Turkish drones, the TB2s, which have proved, you know, to be a game changer. They have decimated Russian armored and, ta- and, 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 and military convoys. Uh, uh, and and are and are very sort of cheaply, you know, um, acquirable by the by the Ukrainians. Um, but it's actually they 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 seem to be very useful. But Turkey sort of replicated this throughout um, the defense industry. Now they're making their own fighter plane. The as you say, they've just launched its own aircraft carrier, and Turkey hopes to become even more independent. And that has struck an, and resonated a, a, a note with voters, right? And basically, you know, angling Turkey towards saying we don't necessarily need to rely on any one sort of alliance or set of partners or allies, et cetera. You know, we, we can be quite sort of um, effective on our own. I don't know the extent to which, you know, Erdogan truly believes that. But at the very least, it strikes a nerve with voters, which basically sort of, you know, has been, a, you know, um, instrumental getting them to turn out and vote for Erdogan just before this election that we saw on May 14, just on, on the weekend. Um, Erdogan had, you know, had ordered the parading around of this new aircraft carrier, the, the, the so-called the Anadolu. <laughs> yeah, you know, it went to the port of Izmir and port of Istanbul, you know, and then just stumbled straight when it allowed people to go and see it. Now we may think this is trivial, but it, you know, people look at it and think, "Wow, look at that! That's amazing. We're a powerful, strong country with a strong defensive base, and yeah. we won't be trifled with, right?" And so it has been effective, I think. Yeah. 
Do you think in the in the minute we have left of this segment, do you think that Turkish people perceive Erdogan as a world leader? If you vote for him, yes. Okay. Um, if see. you are a strong supporter of Erdogan at this point, I would definitely say yes. People really see him, especially if they're sort of really in the sort of Erdogan sort of ecosystem, the, the bubble, so to speak, right? You know, if, if you watch enough street interviews in Turkey that that's on social media or even just actually visit Turkey and talk to people who who, who have a sort of proclivity to gravitate towards Erdogan's camp, absolutely, they'll say, you know, Erdogan has basically, you know, showed the world that, you know, we matter. And, um, you know, he's shown, like, for example, he's put the Israelis in their place. You know, uh, he has, you know, he's really stuck it to the American president when, you know, when dealing with him. Or he's told the Europeans that he's that he's a force to be reckoned with. Um, is that actually true? In some respects, it also has the you know, the benefit of actually being true. Erdogan has charted, although bellicosely, although you know um, belligerently in his rhetoric and tone, quite a sort of um, nasty way of dealing with Turkey's sort of you know traditional Western partners and allies in the public sphere. But on the other hand, he really has carved out a more independent sort of trajectory. For Turkey in the world sphere, whether that's in Turkey's interest or not, that's debatable. But I would say that he's very much basically put Turkey on the map. And if for no other reason, like if you look at, let's say, you know, the West's coverage of these elections, the Washington Post referred to the, you know, the Turkish elections this year as the most important election in the world in 2023. Oh, wow. So one way or another, Erdogan has put Turkey on the map. We'll be back after a short break to talk about democracy and the system of checks and balances in Turkey. Um, Dr. Jiddi, uh, as I understand it, at some point, Turkey changed from a parliamentary republic to an executive presidential system. Am I correct on that? You're shaking your head in affirmation, right? <laughs> Yeah, so in 2017, the, you know, Turkey held a public referendum that was tabled by President Erdogan. And Table, that referendum okay. basically asked people one thing. Are you in, you know, do you approve or not approve of transi trans trans um, transitioning Turkey from a parliamentary system of government, which it has been since 1923, to a presidential one? And what that means in practice is, and by the way, the people said yes, overwhelmingly. Not overwhelmingly, I'm sorry, I correct that. With a bare minimum majority, just <laughs> over 50%. Much different than overwhelmingly. Okay, bare majority. Okay. Well, I mean, it, it also, that, that actually shows what kind of mandate the country's system of government was changed. I mean, is that is that a mandate or not? If we decided to change, for example, in the United States, if we wanted to sort of abolish or significantly downscale the powers of the presidency, Right, for example, and over fifty percent, just barely over fifty percent of the electorate said yes, but basically forty-eight to forty-nine percent people said no. What 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 kind of message does that send? I, I think that's that's a big. That's issue. not a mandate at all. I don't, in my opinion, I don't think so either. Yeah, I don't think so, and that's a problem. But anyway, um, 
By the way, this referendum coincides with Erdogan himself wanting to be president, becoming president, right? The timing of it. Well, he was already president. He became elected president in 2014. 2014. But under under that, under uh, when he was elected president in 2014, he didn't have the vast powers of the new presidency, which was bestowed to him or given to him, right? Following uh, the referendum, right? Because that referendum basically set out a significant shift of power uh, from the parliament and the executive under the prime minister's office to the office of the president. And actually the office of the prime minister was abolished, right? So right now what happens is, you know, under this new system of government, the president has virtually uh, complete, and that's really significant. I mean, what does that mean? So for example, today, you know, the president of Turkey can wake up and say, tomorrow I decree that every Turkish citizen will wear a yellow vest. <laughs> that because and he publishes that that carries the full force of law. It cannot be rescinded by Parliament. It cannot be legislated over by Parliament. It cannot be vetoed by Parliament or the courts. His decree is final. Wait, wait, the wait, Turkish wait, wait! I'm sorry. You're talking about Turkey now, as in 2023. Yes. yes. Well then. <laughs> I re- wow, that makes Erdogan a king, essentially. Not even yes. a constitutional it, it, king, kings before the constitutional. Yes, act. it gives him an almost unlimited powers. The only, the only way he can be held to account legally is if he is successfully charged with treason, uh, which is a very high bar. But other than that, the president's ability to car- you know, issue decrees that carry for the full force of law and legislation is unlimited, right? He can appoint judges. He can appoint anyone to any executive position within the government. Um, he gets to appoint a lion's share of, uh, of of members of the constitutional or supreme court of the country, right? Um, so this basically new system of government that came into force in 2017, which a lot of essential analysts and scholars of you know legal scholars warned about. Uh, uh, was is is quite sort of uh, precedent setting, and I would argue dangerous because again, it is an executive presidency which has vir- virtually no checks and balances. This is the problem, right? The parliament still exists, and parliament can legislate, can come out with a piece of legislation and pass it, but the president can veto that and override it with his own decree, and that's significant. This is unbelievable. So then, then I guess, what is democracy in the Turkish context? Well, it's, uh, <laughs> this is what people are crying foul of. And this is what people were hoping to overturn in this election that just went, simply because the main promise of the opposition candidate that was facing off Erdogan yesterday at the, at the elections on May 14, right? His main promise to the electorate was, when we come to power, we will transition Turkey back to a parliamentary system of government. They call the strengthened democratic system. That's what they were hoping to take the country back towards. The problem is, in order to change the constitution, you need minimum two-thirds of the members of parliament to vote for that change, which is 400 out of 600 seats. They didn't achieve that, right? They didn't even come close to achieving it. Right now, Turkish parliament, as, as the numbers are sort of panning out, suggests that Mr. Erdogan's alliance between the AKP and the Nationalist, uh, uh, Nationalist Movement Party, right, uh, has a pro- pro- majority of seats uh, in parliament, right? 
again, by themselves, they don't have enough votes to change the constitution. But regardless, the opposition doesn't doesn't either. Right. So this whole sort of dream of wanting to transition Turkey back to a parliamentary system of democracy is going to have to wait for now, at least uh, because parliament doesn't have the numbers. Right. Um, and so what does that say about Turkish democracy going forward? Not good, not nothing good. If Erdogan is reelected as president uh, on the May 28th runoff, it, it essentially ensures that he gets to govern uh, as how, basically how he would like uh, without basically any impediments that could be put in his way legally. And this is happening to a country that for two to three decades, they actually tasted democracy. And now they're going backwards. Yeah, I mean, I would, you know, my 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 honest opinion on that would be um, to suggest that Turkey's parliamentary democracy was less than perfect, but Turkey has a long history of democracy and democratic governance mm-hmm. that was flawed. Um, uh, I think, you know, one respect, what you know. Um, one reflection of that was strong parliamentarianism, parliamentary procedure, that it was hard to change laws and pass laws, but it was a process and it was institutional. Yeah, institutional, right. yes, versus personalized. Right, exactly. So, for example, the realm of foreign policy decision making, right? You know, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs with its, you know, diplomatic corps, um, the National Security Council of Turkey with its huge secretariat, as well as... Um, the military, but also the cabinet and the prime minister's office would be the sort of trifecta of this, you know, inputs that basically drove foreign policy decision making in Turkey, which was not always to Turkey's interest and they made mistakes. But again, it was institutional. Yeah. Right. And this is what we've seen since the promulgation of the presidential system in 2017, a significant deinstitutionalization in the decision making of Turkey, where essentially Mr. Erdogan has been making the vast majority of decisions with little to minimal to no input uh, by the country's institutions in what Turkey does, right? Um, yeah. And that's been a problem for him, right? Because everybody, every institution, everybody, you know, is looking for him, up to him to make a decision. So micromanagement has become a major problem. Uh, and, 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 and the stalling yeah. of decision-making has occurred because Mr. Erdogan is... The, the the alpha and the omega of decision making within the country. This is this is hyper personalization of politics in Turkey and it's happening it in is. many other countries. Let's it take is. a break here. Stay with me and Dr. Jiddi as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Dr. Jiddi, in Turkey, are elections considered fair? Depends what what time you're looking at. So historically, you know, Turkey in the single party period between 1923 to 1950, essentially, when there was only basically the, the, the founding party of Ataturk to vote for, there was no real alternative but to vote for the CHP, the Republican People's Party of Ataturk. But from 1950 onwards, 
you know, political controls were removed and Turkey transitioned into competitive party politics. And people have a rich history of basically voting for their party and candidate of choice. And we saw peaceful transition of power um, from one election, successive election to the next. I would basically argue all the way up until the 2015 elections. Right. And Turks are very proud of their voting uh, uh, process. They're very jealous of their vote. They want to see it represented in parliament. They want their choice respected. Whether it was fair it was has uh, always been a question mark because, you know, um, at different points in time in Turkey's electioneering sort of processes, depending on who's been in government, you know, um, there's been at times undue influence of political pressure upon the media. So, for example, the 1950s was notorious under the premiership of Pres uh, Prime Minister Menderes for really sort of curtailing press freedoms and sort of you know, banning columns and publishing sort of whitewash papers with, you know, blocking and censoring, you know, uh, journalistic sort of publications. But then again, the 1980s and 1990s was pretty lively in terms of political discussions and TV debates between rival political candidates to what we have now in the Erdogan era, particularly since, um, I would say, 2015, where, you know, the media in Turkey has become almost the, the broad mainstream, uh, what we call the pool media in Turkey, is 90% pro-Erdogan. And if they're not pro-Erdogan, they were either bought out or forcibly chucked out, right? 90% pro-Erdogan? Yeah, unfortunately, the, 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 the mainstream uh, broadcast and print media is approximately 90% pro-Erdogan, <laughs> to the effect that when Erdogan gave an interview two days ago on one TV channel in Turkey, Approximately 10 to 15 other channels basically gave the same air, airspace to, the, to that same message. It was so quite, you know, quite how do people learn about the opposition? Where do they get their time? <laughs> uh, and also, I should mention that, you know, if you look at the print media, sometimes like 15, 20 papers run the same headline and even the same commentary, right? The same sort of narrative that, you know, they just pigeon, they parrot each other. Um, good question. How do people get their information if they don't believe, you know, buy sort of the Erdogan Kool-Aid? Um, well, there are a couple of sources. Domestically, there are still vestiges of independent media. So most of those are online. So Mediascope is one of them, for example. There are actually TV channels in Turkey uh, still broadcast, being permitted to be broadcast, uh, you know, an opposition sort of or I would say independent sort of message. Hulk TV is one. And your, view, your, your listeners might find this entertaining. Uh, Fox TV in Turkey, which is a subsidiary of Fox, you know, the Murdoch group in Turkey, is vehemently anti-Erdogan. Uh, <laughs> uh, I would not have thought that. That is yeah, interesting. It, it really is. I mean, it, it is, it is, it is a, it, it's like the CNN of, what, of the United States, right? Oh, it, wow. It, 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 it really so, is. It's quite a... Yeah. So maybe Mr. Murdoch is is more liberal in Turkey than he is uh, in the West. Um, so given that ninety percent of media uh, and also you know online uh, TV and and print media are pro Erdogan, it's 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 amazing that uh, Kılıçdaroğlu actually got forty percent plus. If you wanted our audience to remember just one point about Erdogan. What would it be? He's an election machine. He's an election machine. Oh, that's well put. Okay. I mean, um, he revel campaigning. He really, really is. 
I mean, this is what this is what he basks in the sunlight of basically going out on the election circuit and booming in his voice to voters and convincing them, but also just railroading over the opposition in any way that is afforded to him. Um, and he's been very successful at doing that. And I think if we, you know, if if and when Erdogan one day departs power, um, right, people will always remember, I just think, of just how successful in a campaign campaigner he was right um there's no doubting that uh he's been extremely sort of capable in doing this and no one should ever forget that wonderful dr jiddi thank you so much for educating me and our listeners and to our listeners if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective thank you so much dr jiddi it's been a pleasure thank you The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past. Rather, is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news. <music>